0: Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks, you guys. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to use this guitar pick today. And you're going to be thankful I didn't. No, you can leave that right there. Oh, great. Well, it is always a pleasure to be out west here in Manhattan. I'm over in Lawrence. And uh, man, like Jonathan said, we go way back. I think he was one of the first guys I met when I moved f- from California to Kansas. Back in 1996, which probably half the room wasn't even born yet, but that's all right. We're young at heart, and we stay that way. But I want to jump right in because we got a lot to cover uh, in Jude this morning. Uh, Just a couple verses, but a lot to talk about. So a little bit of recap. Pastor Jonathan, last week, uh, the message, More Than Your Bro. I like that title. That was was great. I love it. But I just want to start up in Jude, verse 1. There's not even chapters, just verse 1. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God and Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And as, as Jonathan mentioned last week, here's Jude. He is, a, he is a half-brother of Jesus. They come from the same mother. And yet, early on, Jude didn't really like or re- he wrestled with who Jesus was. I mean, the familiarity and all of that stuff. Uh, but here he comes to a place where he calls himself a servant of Jesus. He got a revelation. Um, He he got beyond the familiar and dealt with his authority issues and and his brotherly... Man, this is the son of God. This is the... He is the authority one. And I think that's really important because we we would miss something about the richness of who Jude is if we skip past that. So Jonathan mentioned that last week. Let's go back. Let's go into verse 3. It says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, crafty, sneaky, slowly, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert, twist, distort, warp, the grace of our God into sensuality and deny... Give no allegiance to our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. So the false teachers, these are what Jonathan was referring to. And and, and I, I want you to not think when we say false teachers of someone standing in a classroom at a chalkboard. All right? I want you to think of influencers, the false influencers of our day. All right? This is who Jude was writing to in his time. And we need to develop an attitude towards these false influencers. You know, it's not just, well, you know, they just have a different perspective. Or, hey, you know, maybe they just need a little bit more information. That's not it. This is a battle of spiritual worldviews that are going on. I mean, and as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, you enter in, and and you should be entering in, to having your minds renewed to understand the world and reality according to God's Word and His Holy Spirit. And that's going to put you in dramatic contrast to the influencers, of the false influence of our day. And make no mistake, it's a spiritual worldview battle that you, are, you and I are in. Make no mistake about it. This isn't your soft, cuddly little Christianity. There's more going on, and we're going to get into that this morning. But I just brought this, this Bible, one of these big, big Bibles, because I find this very f- fascinating, that this is the Bible, and then here we are, And this is Jude. One little piece of parchment blowing in the wind. Right? 25, 28 verses, something like that. This is it. Of all this that you see, we're we're dealing with this. You think, well, it's insignificant. It's just, is it something, what do they call them, flyover states? You know? Is this one of those you just kind of, but there is so much. There is so much as you guys are going through this series you're going to get out of just these small verses, this small amount of verses, they're so powerful to tell us how to walk in faith and to deal with the reality of our life today, even 2,000 years beyond uh, the time of this Jude writing this, and to help us not be captured by lies and false teaching, all right? Now, and, and... Let's jump in. We're in verse 5. This is about where Jonathan left off last week, I believe. All right? So we're going we're to jump into a couple new verses. But it says, Now, I want to remind you, Jude's reminding people, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling... He is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What's Jude referring to about these angels here? What's he, what's he talking about? I mean, he, he started in the first verse, he's talking about leaving Egypt, right? Okay, we get that story, we understand it. What's he doing? What's he, he's, he's reminding us of something. So that immediately makes us want to get, take a hyperlink from Jude and hyperlink back into Genesis. Otherwise, we just pass right over this, and we don't understand what he's talking about. So let's do that. Genesis 6, verses 1. We're going to start there. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, of men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Whoa, what's this about? What are we venturing into? What has Jude gotten us into this morning, right? These are, he is talking about the sons of God in this verse is what Jude, when he said the angels that he just talked about in Jude, he said this. The angels were part of God's divine council God had a throne room and he had angels with him and they were part of his divine council And they left heaven and came down to earth and came in to the daughters of men. Now, this is crazy stuff, you guys. I know angels having sexual relations with women and producing the Nephilim. I know. We can't shelve this story. It's actually paramount to biblical theology and the understanding of evil and sin and the doctrine of depravity in our world today. And we just can't chalk it up to Adam and Eve, Genesis 3 in the garden. Yes, sin originated there. But the proliferation of evil on the earth, spreading like a spiritual contagion, is not just left at the feet of Adam and Eve in Genesis 6, but it's in Genesis 3. It's in Genesis 6 with the angels. All right? And so you know this isn't just me. I'm going to bring you into a gentleman named Dr. Heiser, who has done this awakening school of theology that Jonathan and I and several of us have taken. And I'm going to read some quotes from his book, Reversing Herman, And I really think this will help bring this to light. Okay, so here we go. Hang with me here. We got a few uh, quotes from him. Genesis 6, 1-4 is one of the most marginalized passages in the Bible. Many pastors and Bible students do all they can to avoid taking it at face value, opting for a safer interpretation that allows it to be shelved. But Second Temple Judaism gave it a prominent, almost central role in understanding God's activity in history. Genesis 6, 1-4 is actually one of the most important serving as an important role in biblical theology consequently discussing it discussing how it should be and shouldn't be interpreted is where we need to begin i'll continue dr heiser says if one were to ask a modern christian why is the world and all humanity so thoroughly wicked the chances are very high the answer of the fall would be forthcoming yeah of course We have been conditioned by church history, ancient and modern, to look only to Genesis 6 for such theology. But if you ask a Jew living in Second Temple period the same question, the answer would be dramatically different. Yes, the entrance of sin into God's good world occurred in Eden, but the unanimous testimony of the Second Temple Judaism is that the watchers, And that's the name given to the sons of God, these fallen spiritual beings. The watchers are to blame for the proliferation of evil on the earth. The New Testament writers being predominantly Jewish and products of the Second Temple period more often than not telegraph that same outlook. We just can't see it because frankly, we don't have Second Temple Jewish eyes. We miss what the original audience would have seen. And that's always a very important thing, thinking about how do you put yourself in the audience that Jude was writing to in the New Testament there, and what they knew when he says, may I remind you of when the Israelites left Egypt and those angels that left their domain, and we're going to get into one more this morning, when he reminds us of these three incidences, their minds, they knew what he was talking about. But us today, in our rationalistic, modernistic mind, Greek mindset, we doesn't fit in our theological box. And it's hard for us sometimes to understand in present-day America, so we got to put ourselves in the shoes of, of, of the Jewish person at the time and what they would understand. It goes on. I noted in an earlier chapter that for many Jews in the Second Temple period, the proliferation of evil throughout humanity should not be laid at the feet of Adam, but of the watchers. That is contrary to what nearly all Christians are taught today. A large number of people living in the first century for whom the Old Testament was the word of God. Adam's fall was not the exclusive touch point for the doctrine of depravity. New Testament thinking about sin can be read the same way. And the early church fathers would have agreed. Why is Jude bringing this up and talking about false teachers of the day? Why is he bringing these sons of God, these watchers, What is he bringing this out? What does this connect Jude's concern to being aware of false teachers? Last quote from Dr. Heiser. The watchers, the sons of God, were celestial, non-human beings whose actions are regarded not only as morally evil, but spiritually destructive. While human rebellion first appeared in Eden, it is the actions of the watchers that served as a catalyst to spread wickedness among humanity like a spiritual contagion. They are held responsible for teaching humans a variety of things that engender lust, warfare, astrology, and occult practices, etc. This is why Jude's bringing this up. And what are we going, we're going to get into this. We're going to try to dive into now, what is the root of this rebellion by these sons of God, these angels? What's the root of it? I'll give you two simple things. Pride and lust. Pride and lust, pride in that they did not stay in their position of authority. God had granted them some authority and a domain, but they did not, they were not content with it. They did not want to stay there. They wanted more. They wanted to be God, not just serve God. They wanted to be God themselves. And these Elohim were not kicked out of heaven. They willfully chose to rebel and leave their domain in the place that they had been given. That's a big difference. They wanted their own, and they wanted more. That was their pride. And then lust, as we see in these angels, lusting after daughters of men. All right, They were perverting the boundaries established by God. They were breaking through a domain and a sphere that they were not supposed to be touching. And we see in the next verse as Jude continues by drawing a parallel to the most graphic example of judgment in the Old Testament. So, this is a continuous thought. Jude, verse 6, where he's talking about these angels falling, leaving heaven. He goes right into Jude 7. And this next example, he says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise, in the same way, or just as the fallen angels, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire or strange flesh, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. We must look at the whole counsel of God. We hold the word of God in high esteem. And these are passages that modern day America and Christianity wants to blow over and not look into. Or act like they're not there. Or or just take them from a different light or just make them minimal, minimalize them. But that's not what God wants for us. We can't brush over the uncomfortable or even the strange or odd to us, okay? And here's another hyperlink when he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. So what do we do? When Jude throws a hyperlink, we must go back to Genesis, all right? And here we find ourselves in Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And for time, I'm just going to paraphrase it, and I'm going to start in Genesis 18. And we find Abraham was visited by two angels and the Lord, all right? And this is where, you know, Abraham was promised a son, Isaac, right? And so it's big news. I mean, huge news. This is amazing stuff. And the angels, and, and the Lord's there, and the angels get up, and they look towards Sodom, a city off in the distance, and it says an outcry and sin had become exceedingly grave there. The outcry and sin had become exceedingly grave. And the angels begin to head there, but the Lord stays with Abraham, and Abraham begins to negotiate with the Lord. Because he says, well, what are they, they going to go do? Uh, they're going to go destroy it. And, and, and Abraham's like, wait, my, my cousin Lot's there. Right? So he's like, so Lord, Lord, wait. If you find 50 righteous people, would you plead, would you spare it? And, oh, okay, for 50, I'll, I'll spare those 50. Okay, well, grant me this. And he, and he does this, like, auction, you know, like a, a stockyard auction. He goes from 50 to 45, 40, 40, 40, 40 down 20. Gets down to 10. 10. Will you spare? And God goes, okay, you know, I'll spare those ten righteous, if those righteous people are there. So you know, Abraham's doing this. And the angels move on. So now we turn the page of Genesis 19, and it says, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Lot is sitting at the city gate, and he greets them, and he asks them to come stay at his home that night and then leave early in the morning and go on their way. That's what he tells them. Okay. And Lot, being at the city gate greeting visitors, tells you that he's an influential man of the city to have that place. You'd say he's to be a godly uh, Israelite influence there at that time. But we're going to turn now to Genesis 19, verse 4. We're going to read these next few verses. But before they lay down, so the, the angels, the guests have come into Lot's house. Before they lay down, the men of the city... let him let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please only do nothing to these men for they have come under shelter of my roof Men from all corners of the city men from all parts of the culture you could say descend on Lot's house and they're demanding the release of those guests of his so that they could have sexual relations with them All right Lot pleads with them not to do this. And then he does something that is just too hard to fathom. He offers his daughters to the mob instead. I don't have an answer. I scratch my head. I I can't imagine it. I can't understand it. What's happening? It's hard to describe why Lot does this. The only thing I can muster is it shows the culture that was oppressing and coming down upon Lot and his family to such a degree that Lot would be in this place, weighing down on him. But the men of the city reject his offer, and they begin to attack Lot at his door. And the angels reach out and grab Lot, pull him back in and slam the door. And the angels blind the mob. More proof if you didn't think that they were angels. Blinded them. The angels told Lot, You need to get out of town now. And Lot hesitated. He hesitated. Indecision, confused. Lot's under this influence of the spiritual oppression and and the cloud of this place, and it begins to affect him negatively. He can't even even act and think and act and discern. That's where he's at. Yet the angel seizes his hands and the hands of his family, and they lead them out of the city, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. Why was the compassion of the Lord upon Lot and his family? Remember a few moments ago, Abraham was negotiating He was pleading with the Lord, would you spare? So here are these angels, they're leading them out of the city. Lot and his family flee the city. But his wife turns back and looks, even though the angel said, do not turn around and look back, she did. And she turns in to a pillar of salt, the Bible says. So here we have, Lot's wife becomes in death what Lot was supposed to be in life. Salty. Salty. Lot wasn't being salty to his society, to his culture. And here we have this. So let's unpack why is Jude referencing this story of Sodom and Gomorrah along with the watchers, the fallen angels. Why is he doing this? Both cases are shockingly unnatural. In this case, not only is homosexuality exposed, but just as the angels fell because of their lust for women, here we had sodomites, they fall for their lust for angels. It's just as crazy. Jude references both of these, the most diabolical events of the Old Testament, you could say. With, it's a willful rebellion that was propelled by the same two things I said earlier, pride and lust. Pride and lust. You know, sexual immorality is often at the heart of rebellion. It's often at the heart of rebellion. And rebellion is just that, going outside the bounds that God's created order has established. Okay? And these were way out of bounds. These were illicit acts. All right? And th- these they crossed a boundary that God said, no, this human divine boundary breaking from what God has established as good and right. And rebellion is that, man acting as God, determining for himself what is good or evil, right or wrong. That's rebellion. But that's not our job, you guys. We were never designed to determine that. That's the whole reason of the the tree of the knowledge of fruit and evil. Adam and Eve were told not, you don't need that. God's got that. But when we do, look where it gets us. To a relativistic culture where anything goes, like today. And the second part is sin. Sin is simply a rejection of the commands of God, a violation of his divinely established order of things. And Jude uses the unnaturalness, the heinousness of the rebellion against God to urge his readers and you and I today not to follow in the train of these false teachers. So again, not just someone at the chalkboard, we're influencers, right? And this is how the book of Jude starts to come to life for us in modern day. It starts to really come home for us. You know, I was thinking about this. As Jonathan said, I I went to college at Berkeley. I grew up in California and went off to the the Bay Area. And Berkeley's another, another, it's another place entirely, okay? And this was in the 90s, all right? But 30 years before that, was the sexual revolution of the 1960s in our country. And it started in Berkeley and across the Bay Bridge in San Francisco in the Haight-Ashbury district. And so as a freshman in my, my history course, it was required that we had to watch this two-hour documentary called Berkeley in the 60s. And it was crazy because they wanted us all, all to understand what had gone on. Okay? But the sexual revolution of the 60s, at the heart of it was pride and lust. Freedom of expression. Do what you want. Don't be such a curmudgeon. Experiment with whatever you want. That's when you're truly going to come alive and you're going to be free. That's what the influence of the day were saying. You've lived an oppressed life. Come out of that and do what you want with whoever you want. But in reality, it created brokenness, fatherlessness, a culture that started to decay Women being abused and and treated even worse. Families were broken up. The decaying of the moral fiber of our society. And why did the influencers, what is that, 60 years ago? 60, 70 years ago? Why did they push this? Why were they pushing this sexual revolution? Because sexual revolution is political control. You have to hear me when I say this. Sexual revolution is, is political control. When man lives out of his base instincts, his guttural urges, right, his carnal nature, then he has become so susceptible to tyranny and to rule by something else. You give way to these things, you lose your ability to govern yourselves. In other words, man becomes enslaved and easily manipulated That's quite the opposite of freedom, isn't it? So the bill of goods that was sold for the sexual revolution of the 60s was a lie. It was a lie. And what happened was people became more enslaved rather than free. And that's what we see in our world today. People in bondage. Held captive by these evil spiritual forces of pride and lust operating through the false influences of our day being lured into, and sometimes blindly led into sexual perversion. But God doesn't call you and I to live by our appetite. He calls us to live under His rule and reign. And that is what we call lordship. Jesus is not only our Savior, forgives us of our sins, but He calls us to live under His rule and reign, His lordship. And that's a beautiful combination and lordship is just that, being governed by a higher call, something beyond yourself, transcendent from you. You come under and submit your life to it because God's commands, his word, his way, they have two primary purposeful things for you. They are to protect you and provide for you. When I was a young man, I got born again in my teenage years, and, and one of the things I, I heard a, a young uh, not older than me, but a, 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 a renowned—who would you call—an apologist or a Christian evangelist named Josh McDowell. There might not be few in the room that know this man's name, but he went around speaking to young people of my generation, to your, if, if, if to your generation. And he talked about this. And, and, and I'm a guy coming out of the world, and God's re, reprogramming my brain, right? Rewiring me to think about these things, especially things of relationships with, with girls. And what does God have for the world? What is, how am I supposed to operate? And Josh McDowell said, look, all of God's commands have two purposes, to protect you and provide for you. Man, I latched, I latched on to that. I believed it as a 17, 18, 19-year-old. I said, okay. God, I believe your word. I'm gonna live this way. In in regard to this. And I remember I found myself on the golf course at Berkeley as a like a freshman in college. And I'm playing golf with this senior. And we're we're strolling down the fairway, and he starts asking me about man, do you have any girls? And I go, Yeah, you know, there's a girl I really like. She her name's Barbara. It's my beautiful wife right here, who's with me. And uh, I said, he goes, Oh yeah? I go, yeah, she's uh, She goes to school at James Madison in Virginia. She's 3,000 miles away. He's like, what? How do you do that? I mean, come on, man. Don't you guys do the thing? I mean, how do you do that? How do you ever... And I'm like, Ben. Ben, I mean, he's like 23 years old. I'm 19. I'm like, Ben. Because that's not what God says. And I believe that God's ways are true and right. And they protect me and they provide for me. And so I'm going to trust him. And he was just like... And we... Kept hitting our five irons and played on. But there I was, you know, I I was confronted with, no way, he couldn't believe it, he was blown away. How are you going to live like that? I want to read a quote from Michael Green, a theologian on his commentary on the book of June. He said this, with these three warnings of verses five through seven before them, Jude's readers are urged to beware of the spiritual decadence of the false teachers. This pervaded their whole personalities. Physically, they became immoral. Intellectually, they became arrogant. Spiritually, they denied the Lord. Progressive morality and progressive thinking often go hand in hand with progressive deafness deafness to the voice of God. Hear this. To live like this is to inhabit a dream world. The judgment of God will catch up with them as surely as the slaughterhouse with the cattle The whole thrust of Jude's letter constitutes a stirring call to awake to moral integrity, to intellectual humility, and to spiritual sensitivity. Wow. Why is this all important, you guys? Why are we we talking about this in Jude? It helps us realize that there's a spiritual war going on over people, over society, over human flourishing, People become victims and enslaved to spiritual forces of evil. You know, a few months ago in the fall at KU, we did an event with our Call to Greatness campus ministry called Detransitioned the Whole Story. Yeah, and it was very, uh, there, was a, there was a lot, some of you came to it. A wild event right on the heart of KU campus up at Wesco Hall, you know, and we brought in people to talk about who had gone through a, trans, a, trans, a transitioned event and spoke about the hurt and the pain and the whole story. Because the, the false influence of our day don't want to tell that story. And, it, and I was there and, and there were people who were you know, believed like us and there were people that believed differently. And, and I remember my heart was just breaking for those in the crowd. Because all I could, t- I could see that they were under a spiritual delusion, a a, a deception a distortion, and they they were not free, but they were held captive. And that's just one example in our day today. But this is important. We have to be able to see that there is a spiritual war going on. And these false influence, they want nothing more than to entice you, to entice me and all of humanity. And one way to identify a false teacher is if they tie godly behavior with what they're teaching because if they exclude it or excuse it, or justify ungodly behavior, then they're a false teacher. Simple as that. They have to line up with God's truth in His Word. And what are some of these worldly enticements that we are drawn into? One is to evil, to lust, to cheating, to lying, to stealing. If it feels good, do it. Another one is to apathy, to entertainment, to sports, to distraction, to relaxation. Another worldly enticement is to fear. Oh, it's too overwhelming, Rick. How how am I going to do anything about it? I'm too small to do anything about it. Those are worldly enticements. But here are some godly enticements that counteract that. A godly enticement for us to God's Word. It's where we how to truly, how we learn how to truly live comes from. Let's be enticed into God's Word. Let's be enticed into quality relationships that really want the best for you, who know you, who can walk with you and tell you the truth in love, even when you don't want to hear it. The one who won't just give you an excuse or blow it off or let you be, do what you do. How about this last one, to purposeful living. God has a plan and a destiny for your life. Man, you've got one life to live. Be, be enticed in a godly way into the purposes of God that he has for you because they're good. They're powerful. They'll protect you and they'll provide for you. And not only that, you'll become a light and you'll become salt to the society and culture that you're in. You're created for a purpose. God knows you. He designed you and he created you. and He wants to build in you this way of seeing the world based in His Scripture and in His truth so that you can bring it to a hurting world. 2 Corinthians 10, as I begin to close. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Ephesians 6.12 For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against who? The rulers. Against the authorities. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now after what we just learned this morning, these verses ought to be leaping in your heart. They bring a whole new dynamic. A whole new, new way of seeing them. The watchers. You see this stuff. This is not comic book. It's not fantasy land. This is reality. And when we learn to grasp it, when we really get a hold of it, it changes the game. It changes the game. Jude's audience, who he was writing to, why he referenced those things back to Genesis was to get them to understand. And this morning, that was our job this morning, was to help us understand what these things mean. And the the bigness and the vastness and the dimension that's behind few simple verses in Jude. So how do we do spiritual warfare when we read Corinthians and Ephesians? How do we destroy strongholds? I'll get real practical with you this morning as we end. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. That's doing spiritual warfare. Parents, train up your children in God's ways. Invest in them. Give give them your best. That's doing spiritual warfare. Speak the truth and love to your friends. That's doing spiritual warfare. Resist sensuality. Say no to porn. Stop scrolling down social media. Turn the channel. Take thoughts captive. When you do that, you're doing spiritual warfare. This is not for the faint of heart. This isn't just, well, once in a while. This is how you to live, day in and day out. Confess your sin one to another, that you'll be healed. That's spiritual warfare against the principalities, spiritual forces of evil that want to enslave you. And lastly, repent. Just go to God and give it to God. Turn from it. Turn from those ways and go into the way that God calls you. That is spiritual warfare. These are the weapons of our warfare. And when Jude says, contend for the faith, man, he's given us something. I believe this, living God, A godly life is doing spiritual warfare. And you and I can do this. We can do it. Why? Because we're somehow God in us? No, because Jesus Christ died on a cross, was buried and rose again three days later and broke the power of death and hell. And now he is sitting at the right hand of the Father and who said, sit here until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He ain't getting up until his church You and I are living this way and making His righteousness, peace, and joy flood the earth. That's why you're called. That's why you got breath in your lungs today in 2024. That's why you're living at such a time as this, that we can have that influence. We can be that kind of people. Amen? Amen.